Thank you very much, brother, for that uh, beautiful rendition once again. I think it's wonderful that we can live in a body where God gives us gift, different gifts and abilities, and we can be blessed as we minister to each other. I'd like to echo Pastor Kelly's thanks for our VBS team. What an incredible job they did, yes? Uh, 500 different uh, computers logging on. We don't know how many thousands of children were participating in that. So thank you so much to our VBS team, to all who uh, made that possible. And today, uh, we're going to uh, continue a journey that we started this morning in our first service. I'm preaching this Sabbath and next Sabbath. And this morning, we spoke about Mark chapter 1. And now we're going to speak a bit about Mark chapter 2. And next week, uh, we're going to look at Mark chapter 3 in the first service and then Mark chapter 4 in the second service. So we're going to work our way through some of the early stories of Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior. And it's helpful in an era where there is so much fake news out there that we hear once again the good news. And as we saw this morning, that when Mark uses the phrase, the good news, he doesn't use it in the plural, he uses it in the singular, which means that the only good news in town is Jesus Christ. There is no news other than him, and he is the good news. So we're going to be looking today at Mark chapter 2, the story of physical and spiritual paralysis. My name is Pastor Conrad Vine. Welcome to all of you here. It's wonderful to see the church as full as it is today. And just, uh, just praise the Lord that you were all here gathered here. We have the freedom to gather here. And for those of you watching online, we give you a warm welcome. We uh, pray God's blessings upon all of us as we share this Sabbath day together. I invite you to open your Bibles. We're going to be focusing today on Mark chapter 2. We're going to get into the Word of God together, a story of physical and spiritual paralysis. And uh, as we open our Bibles, I invite you to bow your heads with me, and we invite the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. So shall we pray? Dear Father, I want to thank you for the freedom we enjoy in America, even today, to worship together. Thank you, Father, that here in Michigan we can still lift our voices in praise to you, as we heard our children singing this morning. Thank you, Father, for the freedom to share the gospel that we yet have. And I pray, Lord, that as we gather here this morning, that your Spirit will move upon our hearts, that you will transform the way we think, that, Lord, you will soften our hearts where necessary, you will scrape off the barnacles of the past, and you'll give us the new heart experience that only you can give. Now, Lord, I ask that you'll speak through me, you'll speak for me, that your angels will guard this building, all who are gathered here and those we love, and that your spirit be the only spirit within these four walls. Thank you, Father, for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. <clears throat> this is a story about forgiveness, Mark chapter 2, and I'm sure that we all have tales about forgiveness in our own lives. If we if we recall, recall the story of our lives, we have stories of when we were forgiving and when we were not forgiving, and stories of when we um, needed forgiveness. Um, in my mind, there are stories when I was a small boy, uh, my father emphasized with a leather belt across my rear end on a few occasions uh, my need for forgiveness from society for various ills that I had conducted. Um, there was one instance I remember, and this relates to my twin brother, and I'm not sure he's going to thank me for telling this story, but I'll share it anyway. I think he's preaching the next door, so um, I think he's, he's well away from here today. Um, we were at a camp meeting in uh, Scarborough on the northeast coast of England. We were small boys, about eight or nine, and we'd been raised on a diet of brown bread and marmite and salad, and whenever we go to camp meeting, we just loved to see all the goodies that were on sale there. And so uh, we went, we walked around the, the display hall there, and there was this gentleman selling bars of carob chocolate. Now, it's not the real deal, okay? This is like decaf to real coffee, but this was carob chocolate. 
And we didn't eat chocolate in our home. You know, it was only when I went to university that I discovered that rationing had ceased in the 60s. But we looked to these bars of carob cho chocolate uh, yearning in our hearts, um, temporarily breaking the Tenth Commandment. And we walked back and forth, and our eyes kept watching each other, and I was saying, shall we, shall we not? In our pocket, we had a few pennies, and we didn't have enough mon money to buy a bar of carob chocolate. So we, we gathered up courage, and I remember I was the one that reached out when the gentleman was talking to somebody else, and I relieved him of the burden of some carob chocolate. And um, I walked away down to the entrance of the, of the hall, and uh, a few minutes later, um, my father caught up with me. And uh, he said, Conrad? Uh, yes, Dad. What's in your pocket? Money. No, no, what's in that pocket there? So I reached in guiltily, and um, out came a bar of carob chocolate. That's a phone, not carob chocolate. But out came a bar of carob chocolate. He said, and where did you get that carob chocolate? I said, well, it's a long story, Dad. He said, well, I have time for long stories. So I told him how my brother had been tempting me, and how my brother had been egging me on, and how my brother had been daring me to do this. And he said, let's go and see the cellar. So we walked up to see the cellar, and uh, my brother was standing there with a smile on his face. It was he who had reported me to the cellar, who had reported me to my father. And um, so um, the cellar and I had uh, uh, you know, a frank exchange of views, mostly his views about me. And uh, I knew that I was going to receive um, a, a visit later on from my father on this matter. And to add insults to injury, the seller gave a bar of carob chocolate to my twin brother and said, you've been a good boy, you have the carob chocolate. Oh, I was so mad at my brother. I didn't know whether I wanted to punch him or kick him. I certainly didn't feel like forgiving him, but I certainly felt that I had been wronged in this whole experience. My twin brother would stab me in the back like that, and he was very happy with his bar of carob chocolate. And anyway, forgiveness. Uh, I've noticed that when people are dying, that the number one thing they want is reconciliation. When people are dying, when it's their last words and their last thoughts, what is on people's mind more than anything else is reconciliation with that wayward child and reconciliation with God. Their wills are made, their financial dispositions are done, but when people are breathing their last, they want to know that somebody said, I'm sorry, or they want to know that they can say, I'm sorry I did this to you, and they want to hear the phrase, it's okay you're forgiven. Regardless of what culture we come from, we all know that we need forgiveness. No matter how nicely we're dressed on a Sabbath morning, we know that there are carob bars in our past, and uh, thankfully we can have real chocolate now, but um, we know that there are carob bar chocolate bars in our past. Things we've done, hidden skeletons, something in the closet, things that we're not, ashamed, not proud of, things we're ashamed of, things we wish we could have done better, things that if we could just turn back time we would uh, have a different outcome. And Jesus knows this. Our Heavenly Father knows that our burden in life is not financial, but it's relating to forgiveness. And so we have, as we come to the second chapter of Mark, we have a story about forgiveness. It figures early in, this, in the stories of Jesus in this gospel. It's a beautiful story. 
And so far in this gospel, if you're here for the first service this morning, we've seen that Jesus has authority. He has authority over the demonic and the forces of evil. He can set free Satan's victims. We've seen that Jesus has authority over disease. Not only can he heal diseases, but he can cure diseases unto death, like leprosy. He doesn't just cure them, but he cleanses them. When Jesus cleansed the leper, we saw this morning that not only did he cleanse the leper, but at the start of the story, the leper lives in the countryside. He can't live among humans, and Jesus is in the towns. When they meet, not only does Jesus cleanse him of his leprosy, but the leper can now live in the town of Galilee, and Jesus now has to live out in this countryside. He can't live in the towns. Not only does Jesus cleanse, but he bears the burden for that leper. It's an indication of what Jesus does later in the gospel where it says, the Son of Man, Mark 10, 45, he did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to bear our burdens. The number one burden we experience today is the need for forgiveness. So then we come to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to pick up the story here at verse 1. It says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And so many people gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. The phrase of the word in the Gospel of Mark, uh, as you go through it, it just means the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we saw earlier this morning, the good news is not just the story about Jesus, but Jesus is the good news because he is the inbreaking of God to live with humanity. He is the breaking of God into human existence in order that God might be with us, that we might receive him uh, by faith in the gift of eternal life. And in this story, we see here that Jesus is surrounded by a large crowd of people. Now, um, preachers may dispute this, but I would say today that large crowds are not a sign of God's blessing, necessarily. You see, some in this crowd around Jesus are curious. Some want to listen to the latest sensation. Some are bored, like the crowd of Athens. When, when Paul goes to Athens, they just want to hear the latest idea. They're not convicted or converted, they're just curious. So some people come because they're curious. Some people want to see Jesus perform a miracle. Herod wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle. Some people come because they're following the Pharisees, and wherever the Pharisees go, that's where they're going to go. Some people go because Jesus is the latest sensation, or he is a celebrity. He is walking the red carpet at this stage of his ministry through Galilee, and some are idle bystanders. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, the crowds are ambivalent towards Jesus. And having large crowds listen to you is not a sign of success. It's whether the Holy Spirit speaks through you is a sign of success as a preacher, not whether crowds listen and necessarily accept what you have to say. In verse 3, we have this sick man. It says, Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. When they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. These are four men bringing their paralyzed man to Jesus. Now, physically, this is very difficult. Have you ever carried a paralyzed man um, on, on, on a, on a, uh, in a blanket? They didn't have couches back then, I guess, or trolleys, but they carried him on a blanket. We had a missionary in, in Philippines about five years ago, and it was his, about his second day in the Philippines, and he was high in the mountains. And he was crossing a narrow mountain stream, and he was wearing soccer cleats because it was rainy season, and the mountains are steep and slippy, and he was crossing that that narrow mountain bridge, which was a series of wooden slats over a narrow gorge, and his, slat, his cleats got stuck in the, the, the slats of wood, and, the, and the, the bridge tipped. And of course, um, the bridge tipped and he didn't, and his leg was kind of ripped off at the ankle, so his foot was pointing this way and his body was pointing that way. And they had to 
rewrites the bridge in great pain and kind of lift his, pry his legs out. They carried him for about 12 hours out of the mountains with a, a, a small army of men carrying him out. It is hard to carry somebody. But these four men, they are determined to see Jesus. And in this story, the crowds are a barrier to him coming to Jesus. Do you notice that? Even though the crowds are following Jesus, they actually prevent the one man who needs to meet Jesus from meeting Jesus in this story. And so when these four friends, they come and they see the crowds around Jesus, and think, how are we going to get Jesus, this man to Jesus? And so they decide to climb onto the roof and to let him down through the roof. Well, we're familiar with the story, but just imagine if, if somebody today were to bring you know, um, some, some scaffolding and start drilling through the roof up here. Can you imagine how we would feel? I mean, we'd all be looking up and say, hey, what's going on? Like, why can't the deacons go and take care of this guy? There are doors at the back. Why can't he wait his turn? What kind, of, what kind of ridiculous guy is this? Why can't they wait their turn? Can't they see that Jesus is busy? And in those days, you know, the, the, the roofs were flat, and so you'd have maybe um, uh, cross beams of, of, of very heavy logs. Then you had smaller um, um, branches across. Then you had a layer of, of thatch, and it was topped off, topped off with mud. The mud was to provide um, water resistance, also to provide um, insulation against the heat. When houses are coated with mud, they're much cooler in parts of the Middle East. And so they go to the top of the roof, and they're digging down into the roof. You see, they're not afraid of the social inconvenience to anybody else of coming to find Jesus. They're not ashamed of bringing their friend to Jesus. They're not hiding the fact they want to bring their friend to Jesus. They're going to bring their friend to Jesus no matter the social cost involved, even if it means a lot of discomfort for those who are sitting at the feet of Jesus. You know, we are not to give up and say that because it's socially inconvenient in bringing people to Jesus Christ. There is no social inconvenience that is worth a soul for eternity. When we were talking about our mission episode this morning about serving as a missionary overseas or the ministries of our church here, don't think in terms of the social cost, the social inconvenience, what may people think about me. In this story, we're challenged to overcome the social barriers to bringing people, our friends, to Jesus Christ. And so they, they drop him down through the rooftop. They don't say that they believe in Jesus, but their actions declare their faith in a very tangible way, do they not? By their actions, they're declaring this is a living faith in Jesus Christ. They're not preaching a sermon. They're not holding an evangelistic series, but by their actions in, in pounding their way through that roof and seeing all the, the dust and, and, and the wood kind of fall on the congregation below, everybody knows that these four people want to bring their friend to Jesus Christ. As I think it was a Wesley once said, preach always and if necessary, use words. Their life is a testimony to their faith in Jesus. They're going to bring their friends to Jesus no matter what. And then we see there that it says there in verse 4, they let down on the mat on which the paralytic lay. And then verse 5 says, when Jesus saw their faith. Notice this, they didn't say a word. You'd think that if, if you could come into the presence of Jesus, you'd, you'd say something, yes? You know, when I was growing up, people would say, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? You know, and, you know, we have different questions at different stages of life. But in this case, this paralytic, he comes into the presence of Jesus, and he's coming in faith that Jesus can meet his deepest needs. But when he has the opportunity, and he's lying there, and he has the undivided attention of Jesus, the text doesn't say what he says. In fact, he says nothing. But Jesus stops for him. Jesus turns his attention from the crowd and turns his attention to this young man. Just flip a few pages forward in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, 
It's a beautiful story, one of my favorite stories in this gospel. It's the story of blind Bartimaeus. And in blind Bartimaeus, Mark chapter 10, verse 46, they came to Jericho, and Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem going for the Passion Week. And it says in Mark 10, 46, as Jesus and his disciples and another large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. So everybody else is going to Jerusalem for the Passover, but blind Bartimaeus is not. The crowds are passing him by. They're following with Jesus, but blind Bartimaeus is left to beg at the side of the road. He's not going to Jerusalem. He's not following Jesus. He's outside of the temple cult. He's not going to Sabbath worship, you might say. But when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And the crowd told him to be quiet. But some of the most profound words you read in the Bible is verse 49. It says simply, Jesus stood still. Have you ever thought about that? The cry of faith, when Jesus hears the cry of faith, Jesus stands still. Jesus was surrounded by a crowd. He was going to the most important date in salvation history, the crucifixion at Calvary. But when this blind beggar, who the crowd would say, well, this man is cursed by Satan because he's a sinner, that's why he's blind. When this blind Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus, Jesus stops, salvation history stops, cosmic history stops, and Jesus turns and he speaks to this blind man. You know, if the mayor of Berrien Springs, I don't even know who this person is, were to drive through town, I'd say, oh, hi, 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 they wouldn't stop for me. If Governor Whitmore were to drive through Berrien Springs, I'd say, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute, I want to talk to you about the lockdown. She's not going to stop for me. If President Trump were to drive through town and say, hey, wait, 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 Mr. Mr. President, I have a question about foreign policy, he's not going to stop for us. But when the Son of God hears a cry, the cry of faith, he stops. No matter what crowd is around him, no matter how busy he happens to be, even on the way to crucif the crucifixion, he stops and he listens to the cry of faith. And so, to turn back to Mark, Mark chapter 2 here, this paralytic, he lies before Jesus and he has Jesus' exclusive attention. When we cry to Jesus in faith, we also have his attention. There are times in our lives when we don't know what to say before God because the thoughts of our heart are so conflicted. But He knows our heart, as we see in this story. He can read our hearts. There is, no, there is an open book to Him. So sometimes being still and knowing that God is God, sitting still before God and saying, God, read my heart today and search my thoughts today and see if there be any wicked thought in me and create in me a, a, a clean and right spirit. You know, we can sit before God and He can read our hearts even when we don't know what to say. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus hasn't heard a word from them yet. They haven't said, Jesus, I believe. But Jesus saw their actions, faith expressed in action. He didn't need to hear um, a sermon from them. He didn't need to hear a Bible study from them. He saw that their faith was revealed in their deeds. Faith is not knowledge about Jesus, per se, but it is an active trust that Jesus is sufficient for our deepest needs. And in this case, the deepest need is forgiveness. Faith in the Gospel of Mark is expressed by deeds, and a lack of faith is also manifest by a lack of trust in God, as expressed in a lack of living for Him. Mark does not say whether it is the faith of the paralytic that is important here, or the faith of the friends. It's hard to imagine the paralytic being brought to Jesus against His will, unless he was, you know, mute and dumb, and he couldn't protest the fact. But the fact of the matter is, there were four friends willing to intercede with Jesus on behalf of their friend. Intercessory prayer is very important. I have a mother, I think we all have or had a mother, I mean, it's not unique, is it? 
she gave birth to my twin brother who ratted on me. So uh, it kind of gives me a jaundiced view of my mother, I guess. But uh, from an early age, I remember that my mother would bow by her bed early every morning and she was praying. And I knew that she was praying for her four children. When you know that somebody is praying for you every day, it gives you wind in your sails. You may not know what the content of those prayers are, but you know the love that goes with them, and you know that they're inviting the presence of God into your life. Whether you have paused in the moment, moment, in the morning of the day to invite God or not, your mother is praying for you. Knowing that somebody is praying for you gives you wind in your sails. And we see this elsewhere in, this, in the Gospel of Mark. We see that just in chapter um, 5, Jairus comes to Jesus on behalf of his daughter. We see in chapter 7 that the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus on behalf of her demonized daughter. Time and again in the Gospel of Mark, we see that God honors the faith of those who bring their friends to him. There is really no mention of the paralytic's faith here, but we know the faith of the friends, and God honors the faith of those who bring their friends to him in, in, in faith, asking for healing. Intercessory prayer is as powerful today as it was back in the time of Jesus. Whether we pray today uh, or whether we pray, whether we ask Jesus face to face, the answer is not dependent upon us, but on Jesus' power and his willingness to forgive. And time and again in this chapter here, when people say to Jesus, I believe, but are you willing? Jesus affirms, yes, I am willing be made clean. Jesus wants us to be healed. He wants us to be forgiven. He wants us to experience the freedom that comes from knowing him as Lord and Savior. Jesus looks down at the paralytic in verse 5, and he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, there's no mention of his physical paralysis here. We'd think, well, maybe the first thing Jesus would say is, son, I'm going to heal you. But he doesn't say that. In fact, nowhere does the man ask to be, feel, to be physically healed. Nowhere. He doesn't ask for healing. He just lies there in front of Jesus, trusting that Jesus can meet his deepest need. And his deepest need apparently is not his physical paralysis. There is something much deeper. There is a spiritual paralysis. You know, the, the people of the day would say that if you were a sinner, if you, if, so if you were sick, like you were blind, that obviously you were a great sinner and your blindness was a daily reminder of God's displeasure with you. So as long as you are blind, that means that you have the assurance that God is angry with you. That's kind of a great theology, yes? So if this guy is paralyzed, he's been paralyzed for a while, we may assume, he has the daily reminder that God is angry with him, according to their theology of the day. Now thankfully, Jesus disputes that theology in John chapter 9, where he, re he rejects, in that case, the explicit relationship between sin and disease. But even so, we know today that there are relationships between the choices we make and the impact of our bodies, do we not? If you smoke, you're more likely to get um, cancer in your throat or in your lungs. If you overeat, you're more likely to be obese and have cardiovascular problems and, and strokes and, and diabetes type 2 and all the rest of it. We know we call them lifestyle diseases. There is a relationship between the choices we make and the impact on our bodies. And in this case here, there is a relationship between his paralysis physically and his spiritual condition. It doesn't always happen. You can't always look at somebody and say they're sick because they're a sinner. But in this case, it seems there is a relationship. And so Jesus doesn't deal with his physical paralysis. He deals with the innermost problems of this paralytic, his sins. You know, Jesus says your sins are forgiven. We mentioned this this morning. There is nothing more distinctive about a person than the mosaic of sin in their life. You know, we all dress differently. We have different hairstyles. We drive different cars. 
We like different colors. We have different style houses. Some people paint their bedrooms red. Some people paint it, paint it pink. I don't care what it is. We, we tend to express our individuality with externals. But God knows that we are truly individual at the innermost level. And that the most private thing in our lives, the most hidden thing in our lives, the most secret thing in our lives, is not our hopes or our fears, but it's our sins. We're happy to express our hopes, but we're rarely happy to talk about our innermost sins. And so Jesus goes to the heart of the matter with this guy. He goes to his, in his deepest problem, which is not his physical paralysis, but a problem of the heart. The paralytic's deepest need was not for physical restoration, but for reconciliation with God. Yes, he may be condemned by the Pharisees for his physical infirmity, and he received only condemnation from those religious leaders, and he received a daily reminder of God's rejection of him, or so the Pharisees might say. So his was a life without hope, a life living under the daily judgment of God. He was simply living, waiting to die. But when Jesus pronounces this paralytic forgiven, notice again, the paralytic says nothing. He doesn't even say thank you. He just lies there in grateful silence. This paralytic doesn't say a word throughout the whole story. He comes before Jesus, and he knows that people can see the physical paralysis, but he knows that internally there is a spiritual paralysis. And when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven you, he lies there um, in silence. There is no further request. He does not protest his lack of physical healing, he did, nor do his four friends. There is a profound silence. His deepest need has been met. The burden of despair has been rolled from his heart. The peace of forgiveness rests upon his face. His whole being is transformed because a guilty sinner has been pardoned. I, uh, when we first got married, I used to refer to my mother-in-law as Gitler, which is the Russian way of saying Hitler. And um, she, I didn't think she knew about this until one day she came to visit from Moscow. And she said, Clarence, she said, what do you call me when I'm not around? I said, oh, um, you or she. She said, no, 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 what do you call me? I said, well, uh, your mother. She said, no, 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 what, what do you actually call me? So I realized that, you know, what you whisper in the bedroom, you know, um, gets carried to the king's ears, as, as, as the psalmist says. So, uh, well, um, actually, I call you Gitler, and um, there was a moment of forgiveness. It, it, was, it was really wonderful, actually. Um, to be forgiven is a beautiful thing. And so Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven you. But this, the scene changes in verse 6. It says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sin but God alone? So what begins as a heartwarming story about healing and forgiveness is transformed into a perilous confrontation about the authority of Jesus. What kind of authorities does Jesus actually have? The scribes, the Pharisees, and the priests never presumed to forgive sin because they knew this was the preserve of God alone. Keep your finger in Mark chapter 2. Just drop back to a couple of um, clear examples in the, in the Old Testament. Go to Isaiah 43 and verse 25. You'll see there um, that it is God who has the prerogative to forgive sin. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. A beautiful promise from God. Isaiah 43:25. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isn't that a beautiful promise? God has the authority and the ability to blot out our transgressions, and He will no longer remember our sins. Just one other verse. Let's go to Psalm 103 
which is closely tied to the story today. Psalm 103, one of the most beautiful of the Psalms. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all His benefits. And the number one benefit that the psalmist mentions from God is He forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. The number one benefit that God gives us is the number one need that we all have, and that is forgiveness. Reconciliation within families, within marriages, within communities, within nations, and ultimately with God Himself. Jesus is the peacemaker because He bears our sins. And so we, we, we think to ourselves, when we want to make peace, we normally want to make peace in a way that pushes everybody down and has us coming out smelling of roses, yes? You know, when, when my mother would say to my brother and I, now, who started this? I'd say, well, it all started when he hit me back, you know? He's the guy to blame here. Any of you doing anything like that? Whenever we were involved in a peacemaking process, we want to come out smelling of roses. We want to come out vindicated. We want everybody to say, yes, this, this individual was in the right all along, and those people are such, just such rotters. And so when we enter a peacemaking process, we're not really concerned about their reputation. We're concerned that we come out smelling of roses. But when Jesus made peace, he takes an altogether different approach. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. You see how Jesus made peace. He is our example in all things. He is our example as a peacemaker. And we see there in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is talking about the, the wall of division between Jews and Gentiles and between humanity and God. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 13, you who once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace in his flesh, he has made both groups into one, and he has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. When Jesus makes peace, he does so through the sacrifice of his own body. Jesus did not say, I'm entirely innocent, you guys need to be sacrificed. Jesus said, I'm entirely innocent, I'm the sinless sin bearer, I will sacrifice myself that you, the guilty, might experience the blessings of forgiveness. It's a whole new way of peacemaking. Rather than insisting that I come out smelling of roses and I don't get harmed in the peacemaking process and the process of forgiveness, to follow Jesus in peacemaking and experiencing forgiveness, I must be willing to take a hit myself. It takes more courage to make peace than it does to go to war. It's easy for a president to go to war. You've hit us, we'll hit you back. It's far harder to engage in a peace process. And Jesus came to this earth so that we might experience peace with God. We see this peace with God in the story of this paralytic here. But the Pharisees, they say only God can forgive sins. And they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, which in their minds means Jesus needs to be executed. So in verse 8, it says, Jesus perceived in his spirit they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he turns to the paralytic and he said, I say to you, stand up, take up your mat, and go to your home. But I will prove to you, says Jesus, that I have the authority to forgive sins, and I'll demonstrate my authority by doing what no earthly doctor can do. I will heal this physical paralysis as a proof I can heal your spiritual paralysis. And the guy said, um, he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them. The paralytic does as he's commanded. The physical healing done in public is physical proof of the spiritual authority of Jesus. 
And the whole crowd, they witnessed this, and they were amazed. It says they glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The crowds had witnessed the whole event, and they praised God for two miracles. Firstly, the physical restoration of the paralytic to his home and his community, and secondly, through the forgiveness of sins, they'd witnessed a soul being saved for the kingdom of God. Physical paralysis can be healed, but this story is also a story about spiritual paralysis, and that relates mostly to the scribes. See, the scribes had received the answer to their innermost question. When the man is healed, they'd say, you know, who can forgive sins but God? Jesus has answered the scribes' question, I have the authority to forgive, and I'll prove it to you because I'm just going to heal this man. And so far in Mark chapter 1 and just this early part of Mark chapter 2, what have they seen Jesus doing? They've seen Jesus casting out spirits, which they believe is only possible when you're anointed by the Holy Spirit. They've seen Jesus healing people with deathly diseases. They've seen people cleansing lepers. The priests could only affirm that you were cleansed, but Jesus can actually do the cleansing himself. They've seen Jesus heal people with deathly fevers. They've seen him now read thoughts. They know that he can read their minds. Again, only God can do that. Psalm 139 tells us very clearly, only God has the ability to read the mind. And they've seen that he can heal paralysis and claims the authority to forgive sins. Now, would these scribes respond with praise like the crowds? Would they, uh, would they praise God for this authority that was now manifest in their midst? Well, they were, you might say, dumb with amazement, but they were silent in jealous hatred. The, the crowds saw in Jesus a power they ascribed to Jesus alone. And when, when you use this text, for instance, with a Muslim, if you say to a Muslim, Jesus is God, they'll say, no, he's not. But in this passage here, you say, Jesus does what only God can do. Therefore, Jesus must be divine. He heals deadly diseases, he casts out spirits, he, he forgives the, the, the sin sick, and he heals the physically sick. Jesus does what only God can do, but the scribes are not interested. They were no longer the center of attention. We know later in John's gospel that it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to be crucified. So while the paralytic went home praising God, the religious leaders were left scheming to destroy Jesus. Just turn over the page to Mark chapter 3, after he heals a man with a withered hand in, on the Sabbath in the synagogue, and there you have the first bipartisan act of Congress, right there, uh, Mark chapter 3 and verse 6. It says, the Pharisees went out immediately and conspired with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. The Herodians, they were the ruling class of the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the opposition. This was like Republicans and Democrats united, in this case here, in their hatred of Jesus, and we need to get rid of him. This was a bipartisan hatred of Jesus by the religious authorities. You see, physical disease, whether it's a malignant-like disease like leprosy or deep-seated like paralysis, this can be healed by Jesus. But spiritual paralysis, the disease of the soul, of willful and stubborn unbelief. Jesus cannot force the human heart. He's not gonna do it. These scribes have evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. And as we go through the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus heals the sick and he raises the dead and he cleanses the lepers and he reads the, the Pharisees and scribes' own minds and they know, they know that he knows what they know and what they're thinking. You know, I know what you know and you know what I know. And they know that Jesus knows what they're thinking. But even so, the more Jesus goes through his ministry, once they reject Jesus once, it's easier to keep on rejecting him and to come up excuses for why they're not going to accept him as Lord and Savior. As the ministry of Jesus progressed, 
the religious, the hearts of the religious leaders were hardened, so ultimately they were conspiring to kill him. And when Jesus rose from the dead, even then they bribed the soldiers to tell a lie. They didn't want people to know that he'd risen from the dead, even from the temple treasury. Likewise today, there are many today who refuse to recognize the work of God in their lives. They refuse to acknowledge the demonstration of God's power. They refuse to acknowledge His gracious providence. They're blind to the protection of His angels. They can't remember the last time they experienced grace, and they're certainly not willing to talk about their experience of grace, and they're certainly not willing to offer forgiveness to anybody else. The quickest way to experience the grace of God is to leave this sanctuary today and call somebody who's hurt you and offer them forgiveness. Offer them forgiveness. You may not feel it in your heart, but you choose. Love and forgiveness are principles, they're not emotions. Choose to forgive, and you will experience today, if maybe for the first time, the grace of God in that relationship, the healing of God in that relationship. And the relationship will not go back to how it was, it will actually be deeper than it was before the, the breach and the reconciliation. Spiritual paralysis today, the hardening of the heart, a refusal to believe in Jesus, a refusal to recognize Him in our lives today, it only leads in one direction. Ultimately, like these Pharisees, we end up conspiring to remove Jesus from our lives with the eternal consequences that this involves. So we might say in this story here, as we're coming to an end here, that when we ask God for earthly blessings, God always answers, but sometimes He answers in a way that we don't directly understand. Sometimes he gives us what we want, and, it, and we realize it's not so much of a blessing. Other times he says no or wait, and we realize with hindsight that he is blessing us. But we also see in this story and throughout the gospel that when we ask for forgiveness, that he will freely forgive. There is no question that we receive forgiveness. We're a very famous passage, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. It is a promise of God for us today, and He invites us to live lives that forgive others as well. The chances are that there's people sitting here today or listening online who bear a grudge. There's a, the chances are there's a co-worker or a family member that you would rather not pray for or pray about. The chances are there's somebody in your life that if you heard bad news, they had a road accident, your heart would jump with glee. There is no place in God's kingdom for these kind of feelings or emotions. The challenge in this story is, yes, I want to receive God's forgiveness myself, but does God's forgiveness flow through me to those around me? I want to challenge us today, if there is somebody in your life who you think negative thoughts about, who you would love to see hurt, who you'd love to hear some bad news about, their car was trashed by a deer maybe, and your heart would jump for joy and you say, yes, good for them. If you have that experience, then Jesus is looking at you as those scribes, as someone with spiritual paralysis, He's inviting you to forgive them as He has forgiven us. The will of Christ is this. Galatians 1, 4 says this, Christ gave Himself for our sins so that He might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. It is God's will that we be, we be delivered from the power of sin. It is also God's will that we release others from the burdens of guilt that they're experiencing in their relationship with us. When the leper in chapter 1 fell at the feet of Jesus... He cried out, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The spiritual paralytic doesn't fall at the feet of Jesus, and he says, Lord, if I'm willing, I'll think about allowing you to make me be clean. 
My prayer for us today is that we'll not be like the leper even, or like the paralytic, but our prayer would be, Lord, I am willing. Make me clean today. Amen.